This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Craig Parkinson, and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on and grab your seat. You sit comfortably, then let's dive in. forgotten about your episode it's just well it's two things one i was really busy but the most important reason is that this episode you're about to hear had to happen in person we tried to arrange it a few weeks ago something happened couldn't do it this week we've been talking i was home for around 24 hours and terry white popped round and we hit record and this is what you're about to hear uh, if you don't know who Terry is, she is a British journalist, author of her memoir, Coming Undone, and she used to be editor-in-chief of Empire Film Magazine, and she worked her way up through journalism in lots of different magazines. One, you might be quite surprised that she did work in. Uh, and if you don't know the magazine, we talk about... Don't worry, we explain. Um, now look... Yes, this is a funny episode. We do laugh, but there are many serious subjects that we talk on. And I think it's my job to warn the listener. We talk frankly and openly and in some detail uh, about Terry's struggles with mental health. Um, The subject of sex abuse is spoken of, but we don't we don't talk about that in great details so but having said that if any any of the subjects are triggering for you um you don't have to listen you can skip this one but if you feel you can then i think you should i think it's it's a really important conversation that we had i'm really i can't thank terry enough for for coming round but I'm really proud of this one. I think it's uh, vital. And certainly the last five or six minutes, it was the perfect place to end it. We couldn't have gone any more. Um, I mean, we probably could, to be honest, because we were chatting away for, I think this is about around an hour and 20, something like that. It's a little bit longer than normal. But it was the perfect place to end it, and it's a very 
inspirational place that we get to. Um, a fantastic message that Terry talks about. But look, you'll get into it. We talk about all sorts. We talk about the North. We talk about class. We talk about journalism. We talk about men. We talk about women. And as I've said, um, there's mentions of sexual abuse and there's quite a lot of talk of of mental health struggles. So uh, approach with caution, but I really want your feedback of this episode. Drop us an email, drop us a message. Um, You can follow Terry on Instagram and uh, Twitter. She's, um, She's a force and she's fierce. And she's certainly not backwards with coming forwards. Look, sit back, get your copper, and let's go. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the remarkable Terry White. Enjoy, and I'll see you at the end. How are you, Terry? I'm all right, how are you? I'm all right, you know. I'm pleased that... I've come back home for like 24 hours and it's blazing sunshine. But don't you think Manchester's unrecognisable in the sunshine? It's like somebody's painted the sky, pretend, because I think since I've lived here, which is a year and a half, we've probably had like four hot days. Yeah, and we're probably reaching the end of our summer in another week, which is bad timing because I've got a bit of time off work and I'm going down to Cornwall and I've got a feeling Mm. it might be... Jackets and coat weather and wetsuits. That's all right by the sea, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. But, as you say, a bit of rare sunshine wherever you are. But it makes everybody feel better. It does. And do you know what? The week I moved to Manchester, a cab driver said to me, he was like, I'm glad it always rains in Manchester because if it was sunny, every fucker would want to move here. Yeah, it's true. He's like, it's the best city in the world. The biggest problem is the weather. He said it keeps the dickheads out. (laughs) I mean, he's, he's kind of got a point, hasn't he? Point. Um, how do you find being up here? Do you, do you miss the... I mean, I think Manchester's got a great buzz, I must yeah. admit, but the buzz of London. Yeah, I mean, I lived there. Apart from the stint in New York, I lived there for 22 years. Mm. And I miss, I miss walking down the street in Soho. Yeah. Bumping into somebody you know. Which inevitably always happens. Always happens. Going for a pint, ending up in a random bar until three in the morning. You're not really sure where you are. Like sitting in the gutter in Soho Square, smoking Marlboro Reds. <laughs> like I miss that side of it. Which I wasn't, to be fair, I wasn't doing a lot after I had a baby anyway. No. Um, just to put people's minds at rest. <laughs> but I, I love Manchester. And you know what it is? We're near a family, which is right. really important to me. And... All of those cliches and tropes about the North, about people being friendlier and the warmth and community, absolutely 100% true. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and is your partner from the North? He's from Blackpool. I'm from Blackpool. Yeah, we're in Bla- well, he's not from Blackpool, Blackpool. Right. He's from Lytham St Anne's, but well, nobody knows where Lytham St Anne's is. Well, I'll tell you who does know where Lytham St Anne's is, Terry White. I know where Lytham St Anne's is. Are you from Lytham St Anne's? No, I was born in Blackpool, part raised in Blackpool, then we moved to, to a middle bit between St Anne's and Lytham, which is called Ansdell. Right. Do you even know there was a bit between St yeah, Anne's no and Lytham? no one knows that shit. So we moved there for a bit, and now my mum and dad live on the edge of Blackpool that just becomes St Anne's. And I went to school in Lytham Oh, my Anne's. God. Which school did you go to? Uh, Lytham St Anne's High School. Oh, I think he may have gone to a private school. 
Right, okay. I only, I only found that out after, can I just say, I only found that out after we were in a serious relationship because I've always refused to go out with, <laughs> with posh men. He's not posh either. His, his mum and dad were working class, but um, his dad was a joiner and a good joiner. No. And, um, and they wanted their best for their son. And they wanted their best yeah. for their son, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Those things we all say. But I, oh, I hate posh people. It's like I've got a real chip on my shoulder. And so I, I always like, in my 20s, I went out with posh men and I feel like... I'd just got had to get it out of my system. Yeah. And they were like dicks anyway. And then in my thirties I was like only working class men, which was quite hard because there aren't that many in London and certainly not that many in the media in London. No. That's not quite at all. a barren wasteland. Um so I did so it's not my fault he went to to he was privately school educated. No one's blaming you, Tony White. No one's blaming no. you. It's fine. It's all good. It's all good. But you're not f- from you're from Derbyshire, aren't you? Northeast Derbyshire. Exactly where? So it's a little village called Incasul, which good, good, good name. name, right? Yeah. Which is about six miles north of Chesterfield. Right. Okay. And about well, it's like ten minutes on a train from Sheffield is the best I can do. So it's right on the Yorkshire Derbyshire border. Right. Okay. So slightly wrong side of the Pennines. Slightly wrong side, but slightly no identity. Everyone always says this, right, about Midlands, because yeah. I was technically in the Midlands, even right. though Sheffield was right there. And you say that and you've got no, like, I feel like there's something happening with people reclaiming a Midlands identity, mm-hmm. you know, with Sherwood, mm-hmm. the amazing James Graham yeah. drama, and um, that Newark comedy. Um, New- Newark. 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 Yeah, exactly. Which I think no, is no, happening. No one really knew where Newark was. No, no. So I think something's happening with reclaiming a Midlands. And, you know, Shane Meadows has also been doing amazing well, stuff. I was going to say, I think Midlands. it's been bubbling away mm. for a long time. And I was talking with an actress this morning who is very proud Nottingham mm. woman with with the accent. And I mm. think it's been bubbling for ages, yeah. you know, for at least the last sort of 15 years. Yeah. So I was trying to sort of dissect why so much sort of talent has been nurtured in, mm. in Nottingham. And, you know, and it all boils down to that workshop. Well, that, yeah. You know, that Ian Smith runs. Yeah. And has been churning out since, you know, since before Sam Morton. Well, yeah, because I, I interviewed Vicky McClure, mm. obviously a previous guest on your podcast. Yes. And, you know, she was talking about that school, but also all the amazing work her and Johnny, their partner, are doing in terms of, you know... Oh, I mean, they're, they're just... The baton's been passed down to yeah. Vicky and Johnny, certainly with their new production yeah. company and what they're doing. But a unit is, base in Nottingham. She was talking about having a unit base in Nottingham, and I just thought that was, like, amazing. Yeah. Why no, shouldn't there be a unit base in Nottingham? Well, exactly. You know, I remember when there was a real buzz when I was a kid. Do you remember the film Funny Bones? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> when that was in Blackpool. And we hadn't seen a film oh crew God, in Blackpool yeah. before. And then Lee Evans was there. <laughs> it was bonkers, you know? list at that point. Yeah, I, well, yeah, he's kind of become a... You don't see, he's become a bit of a recluse. Has he? I don't know. No, I well, don't know either. Maybe he's just gone, I've kind of done what I needed to do. Yeah, I mean, he was in There's Something About Mary. I mean, where else are you? Are you going to go after that? Well, you'd be just upset that you didn't get Matt Dillon's part because of the well, teeth. So purely well, because of the teeth. Yeah, thing, yeah. You know, it's last a few seconds. <laughs> so it feels you feel settled in the north. Yes, yeah. And we, do you know what? We always thought we'd come back Northway eventually. Was the, this prior to having a baby? Baby. Yeah. yeah. So we kind of said, "Oh, in years to come." Probably in my head, thinking more like twenty years mm. to come. And then I had a baby, and the pandemic happened. 
And I was just like, I can remember one day we were just, we'd been talking about what we wanted to do. Our baby, Emlyn, he learned to crawl backwards because the front room was so small that he'd crawl a few steps. Yeah. And hit the wall. And so then he started, it was like moonwalking, but crawling. Wow. And I just said to him, if our baby's learning to crawl backwards, we're going to have to move somewhere bigger. <laughs> and in London, that would have meant something to share in zone eight. Yeah, exactly. So um, I just said one day, like, I was like, fuck it, let's just move to. And then I was like, let's move to the north. And I was pitching for Sheffield. Mm. And he, as a Lancashire uh, boy was not having it at all. Of course, it wasn't. So we agreed on we agreed on Manchester. He's gone back up in my estimation. <laughs> yeah, so it's been a roller coaster for his reputation so far. But we and we moved up like four weeks later. Wow, that yeah. that's that's really let's decide yeah. and go, wasn't it? Yeah. And obviously, you'd had quite a long-standing career. That was, I mean, apart mm. from the the time the timeout stuff in New York, yeah. I was obviously based in London. Mm. So you were going to obviously say goodbye to all that? The media, my job side of it? Yeah. Well, no, not originally. The, the plan was, so yeah, I'd worked in magazines in London for 20 odd years mm. with the, as you say, the three and a half years in New York. Um, and I was working at Empire and I loved working for Empire. It was like my dream job. Yes. But then when I had the baby, it was just impossible to to do both but my initial plan was because everybody was back in this kind of half work from home half work from the office scenario I was like it's a two-hour commute it'll be fine and and three days a week I was gonna travel to London and back again the same day which seems like madness now that would have been like a six-hour round trip yeah getting to the station and back again but that was the original plan was that's what I was I was going to do um and to be honest most of the time before I quit we were working at home still because we were in and out of lockdowns and and they were kind of the guidance kept changing on working from home so we were still pretty much working from home right up until I left Mm. and what so what was the plan then after that I didn't really have one and it was it was and I probably should have done because that's the thing because what you realize when you have a baby is like being responsible for yourself is one thing. If you get yourself in a scrape, I've always been able to get myself out of it before, but having a kid, you've got to pay for that child forever. Um, And that's a massive responsibility, but I just knew I couldn't make it work anymore and stomach was going to have to give. And if the job didn't give, I just wasn't going to see him at all. And I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. No, because I've talked to some loads of people about this who have children and it's like, you can't get that time back. No. I can't, as an actor, go to Australia for six months mm. and do a job. That's just not, it's not going to happen for yeah. me. I know various people that go, oh, well, I'm going to Los Angeles and I'm, this is what I'm going to do and I'll see my children. Yeah. I, personally, I can't do that. No. And I'm not saying, you know, one's right or wrong, but yeah. that's it has to be a personal decision. You, as I say, you can't get that time back. It's so no. important. And he was a really crucial age. He must have been about just over a year. So when he, when I actually quit, he was about a year and three months. And I was just like, you know, this, this time when he's becoming his own little person, um, and he's a complete joy to be around. Mm. I felt like that was being robbed from me and I could start to really resent that. Yeah. Um, and I was exhausted all the time and working such stupid hours. And I was like, Do you know what? I have to make for 
probably the first time in my life I have to make a proper life decision because before it always just been put put the job first um whatever it takes and I wasn't willing to do whatever it took this time and so I just thought I knew um coming undone was in development um so the adaptation of my memoir which I was going to be involved in somehow but that wasn't clear kind of how at that point and I figured I'd been a journalist and an editor for 20 years and that something (laughs) would work out and I'd do some kind of work and so I just kind of crossed my fingers and and took the leap and that was that really and also after 20 years yeah you know it's a bit like the acting lark you kind of know a lot of people. So yeah. you obviously knew yeah. and you would able to make connections up here. Yeah, yeah, and, and I do other stuff like event hosting and broadcasting and all of that. So I figured between it all, you know, I'd be able to cobble some kind of career together on the other side. And also start to relax a bit and be, and be yeah. there to, to be to be match fit for being a mum. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's in nursery four days at the moment. That one day he's just with me, obviously, me and his dad on a weekend. And I find that that Tuesday I spend with him is quite sacred. So I really try not to take on any work that interrupts that Mm -hmm. because that's just time for him and me to spend together. And like I say, he's just just the most brilliant company. That's what no one tells you about having a kid. You know all the hard stuff, how knackering it's going to be, how yeah. financially draining it is. All of those things are true, but fuck me, nobody tells you that actually. like It's like having your best mate in the world has been shrunk down into a tiny person who you get to hang out with all the all time. time yeah. Like literally, all the time. like when he's at nursery, we miss him. We talk about like, should we go and get him early so we can spend a bit more time with him like what do we think he's doing do you think he's doing that joke thing he does with us do you think he's doing that do you think people think he's funny we're like people really think it's funny <laughs> but and i know everybody thinks this about their kids but um yeah the t- i i don't think i really valued that time as as being time important time to spend if you know what i mean it yeah. was always like especially before i had kids it was all about the career everything and i i worked 24 7 and I didn't really, to be honest, see that much of a value in life outside of work. I didn't really have a personal life to speak of for years. I obviously then met my partner and, you know, we moved in together and, and had done all this. But I'd been single for 10 years before that. So I'd already started to shift my priorities a bit because I thought, you know what, like, quite like spending time with him and having something outside of a job. And also, I just think it's so dangerous for your entire life and personality and value system to be caught up in a job absolutely yeah i mean i was when I'm, sometimes when i talk to younger actors and they're so hungry mm. which is brilliant mm. and they're really ambitious I, you know now at 46 i'm much less ambitious yeah. than what i used <laughs> to be and not that i don't love what i do but mm. you know i always tell talk to them about you know the, the power of saying no yeah. and just going, you know what, maybe just give a bit of time for yourself and maybe this job isn't the right thing yeah. for you and something else will come along that will trump it and it'll yeah. be fine. You're just in such a rush. I remember about my 20s just always wanting to get to the next bit of my career, oh, the more senior yeah. job, the bigger magazine. And I never stopped to enjoy any of it. Like my 20s, I should have been going out around London and finding out who I was and who I wasn't. And my overriding memory of my 20s is just 
grafting and it's you know it's not exactly being down the pit you know making magazines but no. working stupid hours when i should have been enjoying an amazing city meeting as many people as possible and also growing up in yeah years, you've got so much growing up to do so much and i spent it all behind a desk really and i just think i if i could go back or if i could give advice to like younger people in my industry i always say don't be in so too much of a rush it will all be there for you. Like I had this thing, I wanted to be an editor before I was 30. Why? What fucking difference does it make? And that, that I became obsessed with that. And that was my main driving force was reaching this thing that I'd created for myself for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, look, goals are brilliant. Mm. But if they're going to sort of start to affect who you are, yeah, then you need to have a, a bit of a word for yourself. But it's hard, isn't it? Because at that age... Even if someone tells you, you don't need to do that. You don't, yeah. No, no, you don't, you don't listen. I know. And I'm so headstrong. So, head, I mean, I'm quite headstrong still now, but... <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know you, but the thing is, one of the things I've always enjoyed about you, whether it's your writing or when I listen to you, you seem, and I mean this as a compliment, you're very back, you know, you're not backwards or coming forwards. No. And it's, there's a, there's, there's honesty behind that. And I think I'm right. And and I've been talking to people for five years on this and I feel like I'm quite a good judge of character. (laughs) And I think there's only been one of these that I haven't enjoyed. Yeah. Because somebody came with a a set agenda. And I thought, that's not, that's more of an interview. This is like a conversation. Conversation. Yeah. And that's not really what I do. And and it kind of threw me because it's kind of in the early days. I'm like, I don't know how to to react to this because we're not having an organic conversation and it's difficult isn't it because i think also as a journalist you're trained to interview but actually and i thought this when i first listened to your podcast is all journalists are really trying to get to the conversation bit but you get so stuck in the interviewing bit Mm. and and you've often gone in with an agenda you want to get certain lines you want to understand certain things about that person you want to understand certain choices they've made and and that can drive it. And then actually it takes you years to learn that the best interviews are com- are just conversations. Yeah, because nine times out of ten I feel people, and I'm, I'm certainly talking from an actor's point of view here, when we're going, when the, I always say the job doesn't finish until we're doing this morning or we're yeah. doing interviews and blah, blah, blah. And you know full well if someone hasn't seen it or they yeah. don't really care and they're just looking down. That's why I don't, I don't have notes yeah. because I think eye contact is really super important. Yeah. Um, you just go, they're as bored to be here as you are and you just ask, just, you get the same questions again and again. Yeah. So did it take you time to sort of unlearn? Yeah, well, I think it was more like as I be- as you- I became more experienced as a journalist, because mm. be- you're so self-conscious at first, especially, I think, coming from a working-class background, you're in rooms where you're often the only working-class person. You already feel like you're on the back foot. Mm. I'd felt like that at university as well, so I constantly felt like I had to prove myself and I had to- I-, I felt that maybe underneath it all I wasn't as able as other people. And I think... I probably overcompensated a lot in the early days and we're, and we're very concerned with being seen to be, to do journalism properly and to um, do very well at it. And I, and so I kind of took a lot of that received wisdom around how you did things and just accepted it. And then it's only, I think, as you gain experience and, you know, you work out other people you like listening to, other people whose style you really like. Mm. And it's always, for me, it's always been people who just have brilliant conversations. And 
actually don't go in with any agenda. Go in with, you know, obviously research and preparation and understanding of who you think that person is anyway, but that you learn something new from the conversation and that you get a sense of perspective about who they are and what they stand for and what they believe and what they represent. Um, and that's really hard to get in a formatted... Yeah, no, I bet. ...ten-question interview. But I think also it's about being... Like, I'm quite fascinated yeah. with people, partly because of what I do in my other career, mm. but I think it's really important to be inquisitive and, and well, kind curi- of fascinated, yeah, curious. curious. Curious about, about people, how, you know, that... The moment they're sat there talking to you, what led them to this very specific moment? Mm. Where will they go off to next? You only ever capture somebody at a very specific second in their life. And all you can ever hope to do is to fully represent who they are in that second and why they've become the person they are in that second and where they might go next. Mm. But you're only ever going to capture that about them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because we all change every single day. We all hopefully evolve every single day we could have a conversation in 10 years and I, I hope I'd be a slightly different person than the person sat here talking to you today. Yeah, I mean, I... And also, you, there's only so much preparation you can do because you don't know how the person's well, going to be. Well, yeah. I remember I had to get up at, like, half past five in the morning to interview Nicole Kidman, and it was, like, the first, like, right, Hollywood... Uh, yeah. who, who I, so... I didn't know what she was going to be like. And the night before, I really couldn't sleep because I was just dead. Yeah, I'm so, not surprised. I stupidly read an interview with her in the New York Times. And this journalist was just prodding her. And he really wasn't nice. Yeah. But she didn't take the bait mm. in this piece. But still it kind of terrified me because I thought, well, what if she's going to be blocking? What yeah. if she's just expecting me to talk about, like... Uh, the, this Sky series, all this, and yeah. I did warn them. I yeah. said, look, I gave them an out, and she went, no, 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 it's fine. She, you can have this amount of time, and because yeah. I want to talk about background, I want to yeah. find out who she is. You know, yeah. anyway, couldn't have been nicer, couldn't have been more open and yeah. super relaxed, and hopefully, you know, she, you know, she enjoyed it because she was off to go and do a load of bloody press where they were just doing yeah. firing the same old questions at her. And I hate that that gotcha style of interviewing which is you're constantly trying to trap somebody into something or get them to reveal something they're not comfortable revealing i i really hate i don't like reading it as a punter um and when i was at empire we had you know i i made it very clear that those kind of interviews wouldn't wash at all i mean we were really just interested in the craft so Mm. we also we never asked about personal life um because also, once you start asking about personal life with women, it's inevitably, you know, how do you juggle having a baby and having a job? A question we never asked any man in the history of <laughs> yeah, the um, and, and so all of this stuff, which just seems bizarre to me, this trade-off we think we have, right? So you're going to publicise a movie, so I get to ask you about a, a divorce, you know, why you don't speak to one of your kids, that big argument when you had with somebody. Mm. Like, all of these things, it seems mad to me that that's what the trade is, that you are in some way entitled to a bit of somebody's soul because they're promoting a film or a TV show or a book or whatever it might be. Um, I find it... I think the, the longer kind of we go on as a society, we'll start to look back at that period of of celebrity interviews being quite bizarre that 
you know, that sense of it being sport, that I'm trying to get you to admit you hate your ex-husband, that I'm trying to get you to reveal something you're not comfortable revealing. Yeah, and if that happens nine times out of ten, certainly as an actor, you clam up mm. and you go... Because your radar is up yeah. and you're hypersensitive and if someone's coming at you and it oh let's yeah. it's a nice conversation and all of a sudden they want to talk about my separation of my yeah. mind it's like and it's happened yeah and i've just gone it's not on sorry that's we're here we are here to do a job yeah. can we just stick to it yeah and then and you know when people i think have been unfairly represented as being mardy or difficult or truculent because they won't give you a bit of their life on a plate. They yeah. won't serve it up for you and yeah. cob a garnish on and go, there you go, here are a few... I'll sprinkle on a few details of the most difficult time in my life for you. I don't think that should ever be the trade. And there it is all. in print. Yeah. And sometimes taken completely out of context. Yeah. And you know what? And that's, has to, that then, and we all know now with online, that then sticks around for the rest of that person's life. Like, yeah. Everything that's ever written about them is on the internet and their kids could Google it and they have to they have to live with the representations of themselves that exist in the world. Yeah. And I've I've always felt as a journalist your primary responsibility is to be fair. Is to be fair and to just represent the person and the encounter you had with as little bias and agenda as it's possible to have. Yeah, but they're not all like that, Terry. No, and do you know what? <laughs> and also some journalists will be like, oh well that's just soft interviewing. That's just and I don't buy that either. No, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't all... buy that you have to try and um, skewer somebody on incredibly personal details to prove you're a good, prove you're a good journalist. And I'm, I'm not ultimately sure what the re- if, you know if you take it right back to what is it for the reader, what do they really get out of that? I'm not sure that anybody these days really enjoys those kind of. No, I, no, I don't know. It's just a bit toxic and a bit yeah. nasty. Not to overuse the word toxic. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be saying vibe next. You know? Oh, don't say vibe. I won't say don't vibe. Don't say vibe. Can we edit that I bit say out? Vibe. I say vibe all the time, actually. I just realised. <laughs> definitely said vibe this morning, and I think I wrote it on Instagram yesterday. <laughs> uh, what, with the piece? You did say vibe on Instagram yesterday yeah. because it was a piece about the baby and yes, motherhood, yes. Yes, which was brilliant. Thank you. Um, writing... A book so personal mm. is obviously very different to to being a journalist. Yes. How hard was the decision that you were going to go for it and be so open and honest with the novel? It, I mean, it was hard because, um, you know, I spent much of my career hiding the extent of my mental health problems, or that I had mental health problems at all. Nobody I worked with knew, um, or very few people knew. There were points when I'd been hospitalised, and um, one boss knew, for example, when I was in my 20s, because I had to have time off. But, But apart from that, I'd been very conscious about building, I suppose, a reputation as somebody really reliable, somebody who'd graft, somebody who wasn't difficult, all these things you think you have to be to be seen as essentially a safe pair of hands and mm. to be given jobs. I was always really conscious that I didn't have anything to fall back on. I had no money, no real family support in terms of parents. So it was always about keeping the job I had and then lining up the next one because um, I always was desperate to be financially independent and financially secure. But, you know, a, a lot of that 
became, well, how can I be the person that people will trust and will give these jobs to? So, you know, all of my 20s and my 30s, I was experiencing mental health issues and just kind of turned up to work while going through it, you know, just kept going until obviously when I was in New York, I overdosed on pills and booze and ended up in a psychiatric ward. Even then I told um, I told my boss I was in hospital for like, I think I did the awful thing of saying something to do with my cervix because I thought that I'd put people off the scent because they'd just feel too awkward to ask any follow-up questions. Yeah, I remember, you know, it's the age-old thing when girls in my class at school want to go for a fag in the toilet that goes, her on it. It's, it's, it's women's problem. Yeah. Just, just go. The, exactly. the, the, the male teacher was just too embarrassed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so... Again, like, you know, I, I was hospitalised, but very few people knew, like barely anybody knew. When I came back home to England, nobody knew that happened. And at the time I was thinking about writing the book, I was at Empire, you know, which is a, a massive global film and TV brand. Yeah. Um, it's been going for years, very successful. And I just thought, you know, it's already quite rare for a woman to be in that position. There'd been one female editor of Empire before, the right. editor of Total Film, our rival's a woman. But, you know, I was always conscious of, of existing in much more of a male world and um, needing to be seen, again, as robust and as reliable and as not emotional and all those things we internalise. Um, so it was a really hard decision to go back to your question because, like... I was thinking, well, it's all or nothing because the the deal I did with the reader when it came to writing the memoir was it has to be complete truth. It has to be the complete story or nothing. And and that was the promise I made with the reader and with the page, really. But obviously that meant revealing, you know, uh, drinking problems, pills, self-harm. And most, actually, most shameful of all was the physical violence and sexual abuse from when I was a kid. And most people didn't know about that either. Pretty much everybody didn't know about that. Yeah. So there was, you know, I really had to sit and think about the consequences of that. You know, even if, because I kept thinking, what if I get fired? And then somebody said, oh, they can't legally fire you. And then I thought, well, what if they just find another reason to fire me? Or what if they, what if it shifts how they perceive me and impacts my career long term? Mm. What if this job gets taken away from me? But in the end, I thought it felt important to write and it felt important for me as an individual to write it. And I had to trust that the world had moved on enough to be for somebody in my position to be able to be honest about it. Because what normally happens and what used to happen in magazines, it's much better now, but it used to be that people would leave big jobs and then they'd inevitably say, oh, I was suffering with mental health issues or drink problems. or But very few people said it while they were in the big job. Right. Because it was too, that was too much of a risk. Mm. So I was aware that I'd be doing it while still holding that job and, and basically saying these things can coexist. You can be really successful professionally, but really struggling personally. And so I... I I had to put my faith in the world, really, to be able to understand that and to be able to still believe in me as a magazine editor and as a journalist, even though all of those things had happened. How difficult was it to to go back 
because I'm just, I don't know. I'm kind of were there certain things that you'd sort of closed in a little box and put somewhere mm. else in your mind, and you're going to have to go back, yeah, and detail those. Yeah, well, funnily enough, when I first started writing the book, it was going to be called Mad Hatton. Just still think it's a fucking amazing title, <laughs> but. Um, it was just going to be pretty much about the New York stuff. So right. just about the psych ward, about my life out there. And then as I... Which kept, could probably fill a book anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then as I kept writing it, I kept ending up writing this stuff from my childhood, which had nothing to do with the book that I was meant to be writing. And it was kind of demanding to be written, really, which sounds really pretentious, and I always hate it when people say that. No, I don't think it does, because, well, you, you know, I've spoken to enough writers, and sometimes they do have an agenda, and all of a sudden they just yeah. veer off, and then all of a sudden they get into this flow. Yeah. And it just and it was just kind of coming out of me without much effort, really. And so I, I thought, I have to trust that, and I have to listen to it. And so the book I... Thankfully, my publishers didn't mind that the book I ended up submitting was essentially two halves. Mm. It was my childhood and then it was the New York stuff. So, and, you know, the New York stuff was slightly easier. I went back and I revisited emails that I'd sent, you know, when I was in hospital, when I'd come out, um, revisited texts. There were lots of material to remind me how I felt and all of those things. Obviously, the childhood stuff was a decades ago, but B, as you say, you know, you spend a long time burying that stuff as deep as you can. And so going to retrieve it, the act of retrieval is very difficult because you have to find it, access it, and then kind of weigh it up in terms of what's real, what's what's a memory that I've created out of knowledge that I've been given since, mm. What what is an actual memory and what I, and so the, the style I wrote a lot of the, the the stuff in about my childhood is actually kind of quite it's not exactly stream of consciousness but it's quite fluid and it's a little bit trippy in in parts um and it's quite lyrical and that was really to kind of ape how accessing that memory feels which is it is fragmented and it is kind of half in shadow and you don't remember things fully and you remember smells and tastes and touches and outlines and so I just tried to commit to putting everything I thought and felt and remembered onto the page and then trying to obviously shape it into a coherent um, narrative but not to try and impose too much order on it because the chaos of it is part of the story. Because that's the memory. Yeah. And that, and you know, memories are built on lots of different things, but not just, it's not just a, a, a static picture. It is smells and it is, mm. it's, it's, it's much more visceral, even if it's a really old memory. And so I wanted to capture some of that, which it, you know, to have flashbacks or to have memories triggered. What does that feel like? What is that experience like in your brain? Mm. And disassociation is something I've always struggled with and, you know, where you just, I remove myself emotionally to be able to go through whatever I'm experiencing at, at the time, which is quite common amongst um, children who've been abused. Yeah. Because your brain can't really cope with what's happening, so you separate essentially from your body. And it's something that still happens to me now when I'm under extreme Pressure. stress. Right, and stress. This is disassociation. Yeah. And... And it's really unnerving because sometimes, you know, you think, I remember once it happened and I just thought, 
I, f- I felt like my brain and my body had become irretrievably broken, that they'd separated and snapped and there was no way to get my brain back in my body. And that was really terrifying because then I just thought, I can't live like that. I can't live with this fractured kind of mind. And it, it and it's always an episode and then it comes back together. But re- writing about that was quite scary because I didn't want to trigger it happening. But I was trying in a way to, to come as close as possible to trying to articulate for people what it's like. So you say disassociation and people go, oh, yeah, you just mm. kind of go off somewhere else. But that's not what it is. It's much more violent and disorientating you know your your mind you know if 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 you could see it it would it would come out of you know sometimes I think it's like you lift the top of your skull off and you take your brain out and pop it down on the table that's literally what happens with disassociation but what does that do to you as a functioning person is quite can feel you know really difficult and unsurvivable sometimes and so trying to capture stuff like that that people think they know about that'll just be covered with a oh and then you know I had some episodes of disassociation I didn't want to do that telling I wanted to show people what those experiences were like so with an episode of disassociation Mm. is there was there ever a sort of a set time that you knew everything would kind of piece back together or was it just dependent on yeah, and I'd, what I'd often do is go to sleep because what what would then happen is I'd wake up and often it had gone back. Right. And it wasn't like a process. It'd be like it'd snap and then it'd snap back. And so you didn't know how long it was going to last, which is this, this terrifying thing because yeah. that's when you think, what if this is it forever? What if? And that and that feels unlivable. Um, and that's that's the problem with it. But I've... You know, I find that incredibly terrifying still, those those periods. And I don't know how much people understand of why that's so terrifying because it's been used as a survival mechanism. It's seen as maybe something that protects you in a way, which I think it does, but it also can feel incredibly terrifying and, and harmful. And, you know, if you imagine your your brain separating off from your body, it's it's pretty terrifying and pretty sci-fi yeah i mean you give me sort of heart palpitations <laughs> just being so eloquent and explaining it because i didn't realize it does get banded about but mm. to know or to certainly feel that you're not going to come back together yeah. it just fills me with anxiety yeah, I mean, right yeah exactly i mean that and that that still and it still happens it happened um, a few months ago and and I've told my partner about it and he knows about it you know one day we were driving Altrincham we were going to Altrincham to look around the market and in the car on the way there my my brain just went and we had to go home and we had to cancel all of our plans and I just went to bed for two days I think and it's not something that you because I years ago I may have spoken about this I can't remember so do forgive me if I have uh had a, a state of sort of panic attacks, mm. but I didn't know what they were at the time. It was yeah. when I was much younger, I was living in London. I had to sit down. I had to get off the tube because mm. I, I felt that everything, I felt very woozy mm. and everything was, and I couldn't catch my breath at all. Yeah. And I sat at a bus stop. Like, even talking about it now, it's yeah. like really hard for me to fill up my lungs, but I, I just sort of did a load of reading and a bit of work and I learned how 
when they were coming on, I thought, oh, yeah. I know what's going on now and I could control it. But I did end up in the hospital yeah. and the doctor said, look, this is what it is. The worst thing that's going to do is you're going to pass out. Yeah. I said, yeah, but what if I pass out and fall on bloody tube lines? Yeah. You know, he's, well, yeah, but you with the tools, you'll be yeah. able to control it. But obviously, obviously, I don't know. There's no tools for this. No, and, and a doctor said to me, look, you... Just, you will always come back together, you always have. But you don't know that in the moment because th- that state you feel is very real. That complete state of severance is incredibly real. Mm. And why wouldn't that be permanent? Because the p- human brain is a fucking weird and wonderful thing. What if my brain refused to come back together one day with my body? That could, uh, To me, that could feasibly happen um, because everybody's brain is is different. And I understand that when things happen at formative times, like I was four and five when I was abused and that's when my brain was forming in a certain way, I understand that there are consequences of that. Consequences that I think are probably still unknowable even to doctors. And, oh, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, that we're only just beginning to understand, I think, the long-term consequences of stuff like that. So I think it's, while it's reassuring, I think the doctor wanted to reassure me that, you know, it's all fine because it's happened before and you'll and you'll find a way back. That's hard to kind of in the moment when you're feeling it and it's very intense. It can it can feel like making your way back is an impossibility. It sounds it doesn't sound like a prospect to me that you would sit down and write a book note with all yeah. this with all this information that you have and you, what you know about yourself in case you just break. Yeah, and you, and I did have to be careful because, bear in mind, I had a full-time job. Didn't mm. yet have the baby, but I had a full-time job. So I was writing very late at night and pretty much every weekend. So I didn't go out on a weekend for six months, basically. And I just wrote all day, every day. All day Saturday, all day Sunday, every night after work. And, um, and so it was very intense, and there weren't many breaks, but I would do things like if I knew I had a really difficult thing coming up where I was having to write about something really dark, I'd then arrange to go to the pub with my boyfriend for, I'd spend 40 minutes on that and then we'd go to the pub right. and have a pint and yeah. have a chat. And and so it was about kind of just being very vigilant and trying to keep it as sane as possible um, and actually the only time I found it, it was difficult, but the only time where I went a bit wobbly was after the book came out and I did a week, a pretty much a week of constant press and it was during lockdown. So you're stuck in the house oh. doing, doing, you know, Zoom interviews and, and broadcast interviews and what have you. Um, and I'm sat, you know, you sit in your living room and I did Loose Women and then I did um, Woman's Hour and Five Live and you're doing them and you're saying some of the same stuff and you're talking about child abuse like it's what you had for tea last night. Yeah. And I became a little bit weirdly desensitised to it. And then at the end of the week, after I'd done my last thing, I I was like, oh, hang on. Because, like, I'd just done so many in a row. And then I just kind of had a couple of days off. And my um, PR, uh, the publisher and my editor were brilliant and my agent and just said, you know, kept checking in to make sure... I was okay. Brilliant. Yeah. And and I always say to people, if you're going to write about that kind of difficult stuff, to have a plan for 
your mental health while you're doing it. And also to, you know, for other people to be around and get that aftercare because yeah. it's invaluable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, especially. And I think I was really lucky because, you know, the sense that once you've committed your story to paper and the publisher's got their book and, you know, that that this isn't a continuing thing because it's not like everything's resolved and you never have any problems again. Mm. You know, you're a real-life person who still will probably struggle with stuff. So the other thing is always to go with a publisher who, like you say has a brilliant team who care about you as a human being as well as, you know, an author. Yeah, I mean, it's vitally important yeah. with this, with, the, with the, you know, all the subjects that you're writing about, yeah. with it being so deeply personal. And I don't want to be one of those people, because you, you know what I do on this podcast, yeah. but I want people to go and read your book. <laughs> and I think already we've given, and it's not a place where come on and people peddle their wares as, as well you know, Terry yes, White. I do. But um, I do want people to go out and read the book. So I don't feel that, we need to go back and, and unpick certain yeah. things. I think we've given enough of a hint for people to go and read. Yeah. And also, I'm going to put a blurb with the, the one of the Guardian pieces. That yeah. you put on a th- and, it's, and I think I might say it's about it's about Manhattan. Yes, so I think they, it is, isn't they it? extra. Yeah, they did an extract yeah. from across the book. So, we'll so. Put, oh, I think we'll put that in the blurb as well to whet people's appetite as well. Thanks. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Going back to class. Yeah. When you felt that you, you had a lot to prove, mm. you know, probably because of where you came from, mm. also because you're a woman, and you're not back to come forward, we you know that. When you were put in certain situations now, and I'm just going from what I used to experience in my 20s, when I used to go to a posh sort of industry, mm-hmm. to, there wasn't that many northerners around mm-hmm. there was a lot of privately educated sort of eating yeah. bods around i would become more northern mm. i would become slightly uh, slightly brash a bit more chippier okay. <laughs> a little bit yeah, yeah. because I, I think well i know because i was nervous to be in that situation mm. because i well I, I i've been invited i deserve to be here but mm. you obviously don't yes. feel I need. How were you in those situations? Did you do anything similar? No, I did the opposite. So I think I tried to assimilate. So I. Oh, really? Yeah, I tried to lose my accent. Um, ter- ter- you're one of the most northern <laughs> women. Honestly, I know. But I was like, I don't think I've got an accent anymore. Oh, my before. God. It's, it's so strong. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, um, my family think I haven't got an accent. Oh, well, everybody, no. Yeah. Family and everybody from back home. Yeah. You're you're obviously completely different. Yes, exactly that. Yeah, but I I think especially when I was in my twenties and working in journalism, and it was very male and it was very um, middle class and upper class, and and I I I mean I couldn't get away with it. You know, I I used to be called pram face by the men on a magazine on the floor above ours because, and I asked why I was called pram face, and they said because you 
have the face of somebody who should be pushing, pushing a pram on a council estate. Fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I can, I can see what they're saying. I do have quite a common face. But, and the thing is, what I, what I always felt in my 20s was you couldn't shake those signifiers off. Right. So I, I felt like I walked into a room and people knew I was working class. I felt like it was the way my face was constructed. I felt like it was the clothes I wore, my accent, my references, always tripped up by the references. Like I went to a fancy travel PR lunch um, when I was editor of Shortlist, which was a free men's weekly magazine. I remember it well. And, and I went to this lunch and I must have been maybe just 30 and everybody there was much older than me and very, 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 very posh. They were talking about their staff, as in the staff in their house. Oh, um, right. Oh, right. Yeah. That level of posh. The staff in their house. Okay. And I was there and I was, like, tattooed and I was going through a big thing of wearing, like, reproduction 1950s clothes, looking a little bit like I was in fancy dress, bleach blonde hair, and um, the lunch was awful. But they said at one point they were all talking about where they'd holidayed. I'd just got back from a week in Ibiza Rocks. Where, oh, like, I, I can only oh, yes. imagine. Just imagine. I don't think I need to say anymore. <laughs> they all start talking about Tuscany. I was like, I can't tell them I've just been to Ibiza Rocks. Um, and I couldn't think of a posh part of Ibiza. <laughs> so they said, Oh, is that blah, Tuscany, blah, blah, blah. And they said, Oh, where did you last holiday? They used holiday as a verb anyway. And I said, Oh, Tuscany as well. And they said, Oh, what part? Oh, no, no. And I went, the hills. <laughs> and they went, the hills where? And I went, the hills in Tuscany. <laughs> Obviously, totally fucking rumbled me like that I was lying. Um, because, like, you know, of course I haven't been to Tuscany. But, and you know, the time I went out for lunch with a menswear fashion PR and... They were saying, I mean, it was very boring conversation. So when my mind starts to drift and they go, blah, 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 Stella. And I don't know why, like it's mal, it's malia. I jump in and go, Artois. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, McCartney, darling. I was like, oh. So uh, there were always those moments where I would always trip myself up by saying the wrong thing, by my references not being right. Because when you don't live in that world... You don't, I mean, you literally don't go to the same places. No. You don't know the same people. No. You don't speak the same language. You just don't. That doesn't exist. All those shared things that we have as human beings, when somebody is actually very rich as well, it's really hard to bridge that divide. Um, yeah. So it took me a while to not kind of... And then I kind of thought, oh, fuck it, it can be my superpower, the fact that I'm, you know... Because I was always willing to graft as hard as possible. I was always willing to do the hours. Um, I was, you know, probably too willing, to be honest. But I was... I, I a great believer in you can get any anywhere with really hard work and with opportunities being there in the first place, but that's an entire other conversation. But but hard work can take you a really, really, really long way. And, you know, I was always willing to work 10 times harder than every private school person I sat in an office with. Um, And it gave you a point of difference. Do you know what? Like, I was often the only working-class person in the room or the only working-class woman in the room. And that gives you a, a voice that if you use it properly, it can be something of value and you can offer a different perspective and have a different idea of how the world works. But that's obviously take 
that comes with age. Yes. Yeah. And it does take age. It does take an age. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no shortcut to that, I don't think. No, I don't think so. I think it's it's trial and error. Yeah. But also, you know, yeah, I think you're right. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about the grafting. But also the doors have to be open. Yeah. And the doors have to be there, right? Never mind, have to be open. The doors have to exist. And if they are, then you've just got to kick them in. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that takes balls. Yeah. And, you know, and we, we live in a country where for all the talk of aspiration, all the talk of levelling up and all the talk of, you know, you, you're you not defined by where you were born, it's utter bollocks. Our, our society and culture is still steeped in privilege begetting privilege and especially working class people in this country being kept where people think they belong, which is where they were born. Yeah. You know, that entire thing of born there, lived there, died there that still rings true. And that's the reason that opportunities get decimated because there are too many people in this country who think, well, why should they be entitled to the same opportunities as we, you know, us people who have more money and have, they probably think in their head that they've had to work harder and they've had to live a, you know, a, di- a more difficult life to achieve the things they've achieved. And that may be true in some instances but there is no concerted effort for social mobility in this country true social mobility no and there's a certain there's a a certain class who are told from a very young age that they can have it all and they deserve it all yeah and that they're the best in any room the fact that you know i look at our government christ (laughs) i mean that in and of itself is a big sentence but i look at that government and you look at the picture of them together as lads at school and i always think imagine if the the dickheads you sat in college with or in school with, you and them got to run the country one day (laughs) because you'd been told from birth that that was your birthright. Your birthright was that you would be part of running the country. Those men were told from birth, Boris Johnson was told from birth that this was his birthright. Yeah, 100%. And that's the, and that's the difference is, and, and so, you know, they can talk about opportunity all they want, but it's opportunity for each other and opportunity for nobody else. I was quite surprised that you worked at Nuts magazine. Now, for mm. those of a certain age, when I say that, they'll, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And claim they don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, look, when I was young, I used to work in a newsagent, Terry, and I used to, I used to read it avidly, out the back, smoking a fag. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, the, how did you end up at Nuts magazine? No, we need to point... We Actually, we need to tell people what Nuts Magazine yes. was and hopefully they can work it out. Yes. So. So Nuts Magazine was, well, here's the story, right? So I was working on, my very first job had been as a PA and editorial assistant on a magazine called Later, which was an older men's magazine. It was like the grown-up brother of Loaded. So it was classic cars, cigars, there were still women, but they were older. Right. Um, good wine. Like, it, was, it wasn't great. And it closed down. Um, and, but I worked with a brilliant editor there. The editor there, I was his PA. I was a very bad PA. But he um, saw something in me and became my mentor. So I went off and I worked for women's magazines. So I worked for Woman and Home. Yeah. Um, uh, even though I was barely a woman and didn't have a home. But... 
uh, learned a lot there. And then I went to Now magazine. I wrote all the real life stories. But you see, I would have expected you to be yeah. starting there. And that's why I went, but, what? But then Phil, who was the editor I was talking about, rang me up one day and said, well, and this was in the boom time when m- magazine publishers were launching magazines left, right and centre. Mm. Rang me up and said, we're launching a magazine. Um, can't tell you anything about it. But basically, do you want to go for a job on it? And it's going to be exciting. It's going to be great. And it's, it's a big investment from the company. So I got offered a job in a magazine. Didn't know what it was, but I'd heard rumours that it was a men's weekly magazine. So men's weekly magazine didn't exist. I mean, they don't exist now, but they didn't exist then. Women's weekly magazines were big business. So, um, so I'd start there. And actually, the first issues if you look at them there's one with Beyonce on the cover in a mini skirt and a crop top I think Nell McAndrew was the first cover star and she had like fitness gear on so we that's where we started off and I did news and then I did features I used to do things like mafia stories um I interviewed um, Henry Hill. Well, did you? Yeah, when, wow. And, and it, I really loved a lot of that stuff. Um, and the, it was basically sport, cars, crime and girls. And it was all fairly harmless at this point. And then sales were exploding. I think two, we hit like 200,000. And then lots of focus groups we were doing basically said they want you'll be surprised to hear that men wanted to see more of the women and when i say more of the women i mean more more of of the women women. (laughs) and at the same time as this what was happening elsewhere in culture was reality tv so big brother had happened so he was like a massive celebrity magazine but it was about these real people who became celebs that then kind of crossed over with the men's market where it became known as the real girl phenomenon so girls who were just like girls who today will go on Love Island and they become famous through glamour modelling, essentially. Um, And this became a massive thing in men's magazines. They wanted to see the real girls, they kept calling them, rather than supermodels. Um, And so bit by bit, the magazine started... It it started off as the magazine Fathers and Sons Can Read Together, um, which you may be surprised to hear. I mean, I'm extremely surprised (laughs) to hear, yeah. (laughs) But then, and it it gradually changed, and um, there was more flesh and more, f- and the the type of girls we were featuring changed, and the nudity went up, and sales went up and up and up and up. Right. And you know, obviously, there were times when I found it incredibly challenging place to work, but I was professionally doing really well there, so I was promoted multiple times. Um, I was the only woman on the journalism side. Um, so, and, and it was a place, weirdly, I achieved a lot in my career in terms of skills that I learned and basically climbing up the career ladder. And it's something I tried to pick apart when I left. So I wrote a piece for The Observer where I went and found the, some of the girls we'd featured and spoke to them about their decision and, and all of this. When, when, when was this in the timeline of working there? So it was after I'd left. How, how long after Probably, you'd left? Probably um, maybe three years, is it something, something like that. Is that something you approached the paper about? Yeah. yeah. So I, I had this idea in my head, like, of saying, you know, those girls. So there was always a split. Like, some people um, said, in the name of choice feminism those girls should be able to do anything they want. So if they want to earn money or 
achieve value by getting their kit off, then who are we to tell them that they're stupid, that they, they're being exploited? The other argument, which I probably am inclined to agree with more, is that, you know, if if girls are finding value in that, that's because we live in a patriarchal society mm-hmm. and we've internalised the values of a patriarchal society, which tells us that our only value, A, lies in the eyes of men, but B, lies in our bodies. Um and in the end, I I quit um, because it was it was going too far for me. It was becoming more more and more extreme. It was turning into something that it, you certainly didn't sign up for no. at the start because the the type of magazine that you were explaining to me then is not the type of magazine no. that I remember looking at as like a, a late teen or whatever. It was no. It was basically sort of softcore porn. porn. And I, I wrote in The Observer about, you know, one night I spent, you know, we we launched this website called Assess My Breasts and it was based on Rate My Rack, which was a big American successful website. And women uploaded pictures of their boobs and people rated them out of 10. And we'd been sent loads of pictures for it, um, but the girls had, had included their face and the whole point was anonymity. Yeah. So I spent a night cutting all the heads off and, and it, you know, things like that. And I could have left sooner. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, the first time we showed nudity is when I, I got up because, and it is difficult as a working class woman I felt at the time, looking back, I'm not sure it was correct, but I felt like my choices were very limited. I certainly couldn't go and not work. I certainly couldn't quit that job and have nowhere to go. I was very concerned. I was pretty much convinced until I was about 30 that I was going to somehow end up back in my village, that, you know, London was going to reject me, that I wasn't going to be able to sustain a career in journalism. And so I felt like I was making choices based on trying to become, as I said earlier, financially secure and safe and independent. I'd never had financial safety. When we were kids, we didn't have that. And that was really important to me, was having a a job that paid me enough money where I didn't have to worry about bailiffs knocking on the door Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, having to go on benefits or something like that. So that was in my head a lot of the time. But ultimately, you have to be able to reconcile it with your own personal values. And wherever you sit on it, whether you sit on the side that, you know, it isn't feminist to tell these women what they can and can't do, or whether you sit on the other side and think it's impossible for a woman to make a free choice like that in a society like ours, I think, you know, you have to be able to, you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and feel like you're doing something that isn't actively causing harm. And I think just as a, you know, representation of of female value and also in what we were telling young men about what the value in women was, Mm -hmm. that certainly wasn't something that I think a lot of us were comfortable with in the end. I don't think it was just me by any stretch. Because it did get very, from what I remember, it was quite very laddie to to use that term. And everybody knows what I mean. It's quite lads, 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 you know what I mean? Yeah, and it went, you know, went on for a couple of years after I left, um, and it became a, a more and more challenging market. And you know, it's a really when you look at it now, it's such a weird snapshot of that time. Yeah, about what was happening within culture more generally, both with kind of a, a ladism, I suppose, as you say, but also this kind of really extreme objectification of 
of women. And that birth of reality television yeah. was, was was happening sort of side by side yeah. with the nuts and zoo yeah. era, really. Yeah, wasn't it? which created this kind of mi- this weird mix. But you know, it's 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 difficult because I was I was I think that you often get to make choices if you come from a position of privilege. So if you have kind of financial support or independence that makes you able to make very different choices. So these days, for example, now I've been doing it 20 years, there are certain places that really don't align with my values and I would never, ever write for them. And I've turned work down for them. And those are titles that I'm entirely comfortable never working for again. And I won't do interviews with them. I yeah, know exactly, exactly. what you're talking about. <laughs> but there are journalists I know who write for those papers. And those journalists aren't evil. Those journalists, A, might have different beliefs than me, which is also totally fine. Yeah. But also some of those journalists have got to feed their kids. And, yep. got, and I, I really hate that judgment that people have, a, especially towards each other, like within the journalist community. I think we all know how hard it is. We all know kind of, you know, how bad the pay is, how difficult the industry is at the moment when sales are falling of physical products and things like that. However, I think it's all down to the individual and what you, you just have to be able to reconcile it with yourself at the end of the day. And I make all my choices through that lens and and that's become more important to me. That's become everything to me the older I've got. Yeah. But I don't think you can put that same judgment system on somebody else who is making decisions entirely for different reasons. No, I agree. I was asked uh, a year ago, I think, to to do a feature with a journalist. It was all about restaurants, about food, mm. something I, I'm quite knowledgeable about and I'm really passionate about. And then because I just saw that journalist's name, I went, oh, no, I, yeah. Mm. I, and, then I went, and then I dug a little deeper and I went, oh, it's for this. So I just personally wrote him a, a little email explaining why I, I couldn't yeah. do it. And it was for, it was for you know, personal reasons. Yeah. And he emailed back and went, I totally understand. And it, but yeah. he really appreciated me sort of reaching out. So it wasn't about him, it yeah. was about the publication. Yeah. And and I'll tell you what, and it's and I think men's magazines, it was all very blatant, right? The the, yeah. the potential damage they could and did do was very clear. I think with um I think there's always been challenges with women's magazines, you know, where you've got... In, in what way? You've got many, not not necessarily these days, but if you think about the height of kind of the the, tablo, the tabloid... I want to say tabloidization, but that's not a word. When the women's mags became a bit more tabloid, yeah, there was a, a lot of conversation around um, how you could... So, OK, I'm just going to tell you what happened because, fuck it, beating around the bush. I was in a meeting where we had to list women's fears and work out, once we got that list, how we could find stories that match those fears so we could put it on the cover and sell more copies of, the, of that magazine. Fuck. Yeah. And this isn't a magazine, I should say, anybody who knows my career, that isn't a magazine I worked at um, uh, full-time on stuff. It was a project I did. And, yeah, we had to list, and it was like, okay, date rape, drug rape, and we were listing eating, you know, eating disorders. We were listing all of the things that women um, are afraid of and go through emotionally. Yeah. And we were then trying to come up with story ideas that match those because we thought the, the person who was leading the session said, we'll then end up with some brilliant cover lines that will sell. Jesus. But that, and, that's the, and that's why I always think, you know, 
there's questions to be asked for lots of different parts of the media. Sure. And I think there was certainly a time, it would never fly now, there was certainly a time where where certain magazines really preyed on women's fears. And, you know, think about the body shaming that's gone on in women's media over the years. Oh, yeah. You know, circling bits of fat and taking the piss out of somebody. I mean, it, still con- it still continues to yeah. this day. And, and talking and the way it talks about mental health and the way people's mental health is, is often splashed across magazine covers without their consent. All these things, you know. So... You know, it's it's it can be a challenging industry from that perspective, and I think it's about working out where where your lines are. Yeah, but also appreciating that getting to make choices is absolutely based on a privilege. Did you ever worry when you moved to Maxim that the same thing was going to happen? Even even though I know they're completely different yeah. styles of publication. But women are were still heavily yeah. featured, from what I remember. Yeah. So and and yeah, I went to Maxim, and my good a, a good friend of mine was becoming editor, and that was trying to kind of, I suppose, find its identity in the in the wake of these magazines. Yeah. And it was much there was there was very little of what was kind of going on at nuts in terms of some of the sex content and and things like that yeah i mean there were proper there were, yeah. there were big features there yeah. were big interviews but even now you know i think men even you know even if you look at certain issues of gq which had complete nudity in it but it was okay because it was done by a really famous photography and it was published in black and white yeah i think all men's media and all women's media think about retouching in women's media, women being entirely redrawn against their will by magazines because they think they're too fat to put on a cover. You know, people being chosen for the cover because they look a certain way. I think when it comes to representations of women and fair treatment of women, it's, it's problematic wherever you look, quite frankly. Yeah, true. And I think what was great for me was being able to move from that kind of world. My next job was on shortlist, which, which had a complete opposite philosophy. So this was going to be the antidote to laddie culture. There's going to be no, you know, no nudity, no women really to speak of, um, apart from women who were interviewed, you know, for doing things like being in films and uh, being in TV shows. Um, but men were on the cover because it was a free publication given out of tube stations because the reality was if you tried to charge for that, you know, people would always say, well, just put a man on the cover like Loaded used to in 1994. It's like they wouldn't sell, like they just wouldn't sell. Right. But shortlisting, because we were creating a free publication that was funded by advertisers, you could create a magazine for a certain audience as long as you can argue that audience exists. So an audience of men who are sick and tired of seeing women slapped all over magazines and want to read something about shoes next to reading something about the mafia next to, you know, the mafia that comes up in pretty much every magazine you'll ever yes. work at. So I'm just shutting the back door. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to escape. No, you're not allowed to go. So, so, so yeah, and that was... And, that was a really interesting job for me yeah. because suddenly you're in a very different environment. You're the exact opposite of the environment you've just come from. And ultimately being able to shift into cultural magazines was re- where I really wanted to be. 
you know, if I'd have had my, my way, I'd have started out at Enemy and then gone to Empire and then that would have been my career because that would have been really yeah. nice, thank you. Yeah. Maybe with a little stop at Vanity Fair somewhere along the way. But um, uh, I made a lot of decisions early on for pragmatic reasons and for financial reasons. And then, and it is a luxury as your career, as you get older, that you're able to exercise choice. Exactly. And that's been a game changer for me. And also, you have more control. Yes. Yeah. And you get to set, so you get to set the agenda, right? Yeah. So a big thing for me at Empire was around representation of women within the pages of Empire, which you think would be fine because it's not a nuts or a maxim or an FHM. But, you know, we often in copy, we would describe what a woman looked like when we never did that for interviewing a man. Um, I always said, you know, if you walk in and it's somehow editorially relevant, like she's dressed as a fucking clown and you, and you have a story about why she's dressed as a clown, then it can go in. But even just the language we used, people would talk about sassy women um, and just use gendered language that I just thought, A, was pretty shit and didn't actually do the copy any good, but also um, just the way I, I was trying to help people understand and help men understand how without being overtly sexist, you're still kind of contributing to a much more, um, I suppose, bubbling culture of, 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 I suppose it's everyday sexism, right? Yeah. Everyday sexism. So certain pictures, so the empire used to put quite scantily clad women in the pages, which shot really nicely in nice kind of, you know, basques and what have you. But still, yeah. In swimsuits, but but none of that. So they had to, my entire thing was, I'd like them to wear as as many clothes as the men. Thank you. We don't get to ask them about their private lives. We don't get to ask them. I don't want anybody asking them about their kids. I don't want anyone asking them about their husband. Like, they need to be respected like men. Um, We put more more female filmmakers, more diverse filmmakers across the board in the pages. And that's the thing, is you get more senior you're the person who gets to shape the agenda and hopefully create something that stands for something. So for me, I wanted Empire to be a film a film and TV mega brand that everybody who loves TV and film can find a home in. And I was aware that some people had perceptions that it was exclusive, that it was for kind of geeky guys only, that women weren't welcome. Um, and I really kind of didn't like that because I think film and TV is such a broad church and there should be somewhere. Not everybody's going to spend five pounds on a magazine, but somebody might want to chat to us on Twitter. Somebody might want to listen to a podcast. Somebody might want to read an article online. Like your job as a brand that kind of covers that much ground is to be a space for everybody who is within that community. And that's the job I took really seriously because and I thought we had to go out there and find that audience and and pull them towards and and convince them that we were a place that they could feel safe and that they could feel at home and that was really what I wanted to do to Empire and then that makes it more modern it makes it more relevant it makes it you know I hate the thought that you could tear off the cover and you couldn't tell if it was an Empire from 19 you know 1999 or an empire from 2012 or Mm. from 2021 i wanted it to to feel of the moment because that's the only way any media brand stays relevant and stays alive is to feel like it has something to say about today and will have something to say about tomorrow especially when it 
I believe not. It's not my world, is it? But mm. it's got harder because people stop buying the hard copies. Yeah. yeah, and there's more competition for time, right? I always, always said our competition used to be Total Film, and then actually in this day and age, your competition is Netflix. Your com- your competition right. is. Spotify, your competition is Apple TV. It's anything else that they are choosing to do with their time. And, you know, we know people are still reading stuff. You can tell that from digital numbers, but nobody's really properly monetizing digital, which is why people are struggling. Readers still find it really hard intellectually to pay for online content. So there's all kinds of barriers, but we know people are engaged and we know people are out there, but you have more competition and you have to be good and yeah. you have to offer them something that nobody else is going to. But at the moment, everyone's just competing for their time. So to just think of it in magazine terms always struck me as odd because it's like, right, they've got a Sunday afternoon, they've got two hours. We need to convince them that the best thing they can do with that two hours is read our magazine, not watch two episodes of something on Netflix. I've loved talking to you today it's been brilliant it's you know i'm always very nervous when it's people that i haven't met and it's more it's more often than not the people that i've never met when we get the most stimulating conversations yes um so thanks for coming around thanks for having me no it's been brilliant but i just want to just sort of end it by asking you how you feel it's one thing we discussed about putting past you know, down on a page. And I think we got across how sometimes difficult that would be. Mm. Now, how do you feel about seeing the memoir on screen? <laughs> well, that's that. That's a different kettle of fish, right? Yeah. And so I, I was, I'm writing it at the moment. Um, and... Did, yeah. you, did you want that job, Terry? Because we, we, we've spoken about, re, yeah. you know, retaining control. Yeah, well, I, originally, I think we, were, we we looked at getting, a. I always say, a proper writer, somebody who's actually done this before, um, to do it. But in the end, they gave me a chance. And Jane Transfer, who runs Bad Wolf, gave me a chance. And, like, I couldn't be more grateful because I haven't got... I do have a bit more of a clue now, but, yeah. like, not that long ago, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. <laughs> Sorry, Jane, if you're listening. <laughs> I do now, I promise. Um, and I had to Google how do you write a screen... I mean, I've read plenty of screenplays, obviously, in my yeah. career, but writing one is just an entirely different kettle of fish. It's a different muscle. It's a different writing muscle. Um, but I was also very aware that it was going to take me back into certain places. Um, and that, obviously... If it does end up on the screen, because as you and I know... <laughs> not everything, yeah. Not yeah. everything does, and it's not done till it's done. Um, that, you know, parts of my story are going to be broadcast to a fuck ton of people. Yeah. And that, and that feels quite scary and quite exposing. Um, but it also feels really exciting, because I, I just think, like, working-class girls like me don't get the chance to to do this no. i never i certainly never did when i was going to all those fucking terrible things growing up never in my wildest dreams did i think you're gonna write a book about this and that book could be on the telly like that to me is insane it, it was mad to me to even contemplate working in an office nobody in my family had ever worked in an office and i just like working somewhere where my job was to answer the phone i was like this is a fucking touch like what is this <laughs> like, and i just it i think it's so 
surreal, but I just, I've always wanted other working class girls who were where I was. I'm thinking about those girls in Telford this week, the girls, yeah. you know, a thousand, a thousand kids in that community. And I think working class girls are so often dismissed and demonised in, in, in the UK especially. They're considered to be women from an early age. They're considered to be transgressive in some way. They're not afforded the same protection as um, middle-class girls. They're just not... They're often blamed in their own kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. And I just think, like... And, you know, when you see the kids in poverty and how it's increasing, I just feel an overwhelming urge to kind of talk to some of those girls and just say however bad it might feel and whatever thing you might be going through, that there can be a better life and you just need to hang on. And any dickhead in your life who is right now saying you're worth now and you're never going to be anything and trying to make you feel at, you know, 6, 7, 11, 12, that you are nothing and that you're never going to be anything, do not listen to them. I say them, I mean him. And because it can be different and that's what makes me so angry about the government limiting opportunities because I part of the way I got to do all this is because I got a grant to go to university because I had no family financial support at all and that enabled me to move to London and get a job and get that job took me to New York and yes it took me to a psychiatric ward but that psychiatric ward took me to a book which has taken me to telly through one opportunity being gifted to me one and you know, those girls just need one opportunity and their lives can be radically different overnight. But I want them to know that they're not lost and that they are seen and that there is still a chance to to live the way that they want to live. Terry White, thank you very much. And another episode is done. Quite the inspirational way to leave it I think and as I said in the intro I can't thank Terry enough um, for coming round and giving up her time and speaking so frankly in great detail of uh, you know, certain things that that um, are hard they're hard to talk about and certainly even harder to recall and put down on the page Um her book, Coming Undone, is available in all good bookshops now. You know I don't plug things, but I would urge you uh, to give it a read. And also, if you want an excerpt, we've included um, a Guardian piece in the blurb um, where you find your podcast. So give that a click, give it a read, see what you think. Um, I hope you're okay. I was actually quite emotional when we finished um because it did end in such a, an inspirational but powerful way but all the stuff that she told, she spoke about with such in such detail with such eloquence um yeah it was a fantastic conversation so thank you so much for for listening and being here on a side note i want to dedicate this week's episode to a very good friend of mine who sadly lost her husband um, earlier this week. She's been a friend for 
many years and certainly over the last few years has been extremely supportive and thoughtful of me. Um, she's always supported the podcast um, and we just want to wish her and her family all our love uh, at such a difficult time. Okay, I'll see you next week. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.